Today's reading is from Acts 8, verses 1 to 40, and can be found on page 1101 of the Church Bibles. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house, He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits became out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip, As he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that they might might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them, and they had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness, and pray for the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. And they further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus. Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many Samaritan villages. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. Then he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandak, which means Queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah, the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was was led like a lamb to the slaughter, 
And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down to the water and Philip baptized him. When they came out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared in Aztus and travelled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Brilliant. Thank you, Dave. That was quite the reading we gave you this morning, so thank you so much. For those of you who don't know me, my name is James. My wife and I absolutely love being part of St. Swithin's. We are excited about what God's doing here in us as a church, and we felt very much called to be here. And we're also really looking forward to introducing you all to our baby girl this autumn. Let me just pray um, before we get into this. Lord God, thank you that though our souls may feel restless right now, they can find their rest in you. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your truth. Help us to return to resting in you this morning. Amen. About three months ago, during Lent, one Sunday morning, um, a picture came to mind for me that I've not really been able to shake. And this doesn't often happen to me, but... It was of a chair in their own front, much like the chair probably in front of you right now. Um, And it was as if three of the four legs had been cut clean off by a circular saw and much of the cushion with it. All that remained, well, was very little. What a foolish bit of DIY, I thought to myself. This won't stand, it won't fit anymore, it's not stable, it's not secure. It would be a pretty poor choice of seat, given the other chairs surrounding it. In Ephesians 2, verses 6 to 8, it says this, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So God has raised us up and seated us. That's past tense in Paul's text, as if it's already happened. Somehow being seated with Christ in the heavenly places can be a present-day reality. So do I really feel seated with Christ? Does this all sound a little bit abstract? How can I get my head around it? Well, I've got a few pictures just to help us maybe wrap our heads into it a little bit this morning. Take a look at this throne. Do I live as though I'm sat beside the eternal sovereign? Do I live as if the Lord is my audience of one? Do I live with my language, my social media, my emails, my spending, my relationships, my attitudes, 
with him as my first thought. Take a look at this table. Do I live as though there is already a place for me at God's table and I am invited in? Do I have confidence in the incomparable riches of his grace? Not scrounging around for crumbs at the Lord's feet, not confined to the servants' quarters, but part of a rich banquet and let in on our master's business as a dear friend and confidant. Do I wait to listen and want to heed? Or am I already preoccupied with other things that bear no relevance to what is on my Lord's heart? Take a look at this swing. Do I live as though I am safe in my heavenly Father's hands, eager to let him take the ropes and to show me what true adventure looks like? Am I conscious each day of his strength, his power, his authority that his hands bear? Do I live with nothing to fear and my future secure? Take a look at this stadium. Do I live as though I'm part of a marveling crowd, always with his great glory in view? Am I caught up in love, wonder, and praise? And it's a privilege to be just in the room. Or do I take it all for granted? And finally, do I live as though I'm on a deck chair in the heavenly places, at rest with the one who rules, enjoying the eternal view with him, trusting that he's got it, Or am I prone to worry, restlessness, or trying to handle it all alone? You see, an earthly seat is obsolete, but my place with him is priceless. Watchman Nee, who famously preached on the book of Ephesians and summed it up in in three postures, sit, walk, stand, says this. Christianity begins not with a big do, but with a big done. Christianity begins not with a big do, but a big done. Back in the day, the high priest was not allowed to approach God every day, once a week, once a month, only once a year, and with a huge amount of ritual to boot. But Hebrews 6 tells us that Jesus goes on our behalf and sits at the Father's right hand, and he remains there because it's done. Nee goes on to say, the Christian life from start to finish is based upon the principle of utter dependence upon the Lord Jesus. There is no limit to the grace of God that he is willing to bestow on us. He will give us everything, but we can receive none of it unless we rest in him. Sitting is an attitude of rest. Something has been finished, work stops, and we sit. It is paradoxical but true that we only advance in the Christian life as we first learn to sit down. And then he breaks down the metaphor. The, the, th- the act of sitting on a tra- chair, the strain no longer falls upon our muscles and nerves, but upon something outside of ourselves. So also in the spiritual realm, to sit down is simply to rest our whole weight, our whole lives, our whole load, ourselves, our future, everything upon the Lord. We let him bear the responsibility and cease to carry it ourselves. You see, we were designed for both work, for walking, for standing, and with rest in mind. And the first human activity in a biblical narrative is to rest with God. But what does this have to do with our Acts passage this morning? Our very long Acts passage, you probably are asking. Well, I think there are two characters in this narrative who play quite the contrast in terms of what it looks like when you're seated with Christ, what it looks like when we've forgotten to and leave Christ behind. 
So Philip first. We are introduced to Philip in two um, chapters earlier. He is chosen as one of the seven deacons to oversee the distribution of the food to the needy. We already know that he is wise, that he is full of the Spirit, that he's respected by his own, and he's trusted by the apostles. Like Stephen before him, he follows Christ way beyond the boundaries of the role description that comes with being an administrator at the food bank. He walks and stands in other incredible ways. We have to remember that the disciples have just fled Jerusalem after Stephen was stoned. Sorry, the, the followers. But this doesn't perturb them. How is he willing to stand and step out, to perform signs and wonders in the public square, to speak to crowds with wisdom and faith, in a place where Jews were wary to go, wary to trust, and let alone include? And God goes ahead of Philip. God used the persecution, what the enemy meant for evil, and turned it for good. Jesus says, you know, go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We have no evidence that the earliest disciples would have gone to Samaria had they not been persecuted. This is God at work behind that great persecution. And Philip's story doesn't end in Samaria. He steps out again, following the angel obediently. He doesn't get the full itinerary in advance. This is not a big battle plan moment with the kind of Star Wars-esque screen. He's not like one of the 12 disciples who've had three years of rubbing shoulders with Jesus first. But still he goes. He follows in simple step-by-step direction and in courageous obedience. And he goes to a desert road, which we know at that time would have been a very vulnerable place. But not only that, if you look at the map, it is beyond Jerusalem where he has just hidden from, run from. So he's actually going beyond the place he's just fled from for fear of his life. Then by the Spirit's leading, he approaches the chariot of of carrying a eunuch, a man of significant political and economic power, and he leads this eunuch to the Lord. And then suddenly he's transported to a place called Azotos, a.k.a. Ashdod, and goes on preaching from town to town for 60 miles all the way to Caesarea. Now, how does he do this? Perhaps it has something to do with the way that he is seated. Perhaps his relationship with Jesus is the top priority. Perhaps him devoting to meeting with his fellow believers and devoting himself to the apostles' teaching, to prayer and to the breaking of bread, had helped him to grow in his faith. Perhaps witnessing the gospel begin to spread despite the persecution gives him the confidence that God is on the throne even when humanly it may not look that way. God called him to incredibly daunting things, but it appears as though he's confident in hearing the Lord's voice. He's confident that God's gone ahead of him, as it proves to be with a eunuch who had already been to Jerusalem and was already intrigued by the scriptures before Philip got to meet him. But also Philip is confident of his eternal security, and the risks of going past Jerusalem again paled in comparison. In some ways, I was not a confident kid. I was scrawny, I was sensitive. I was probably far what being considered cool was, although I'm not sure I really knew what cool was. But I had a few role models in their 20s who seemed to live by a different reality. They seemed to live by a different reality. They didn't mind being open with their emotions. 
They didn't mind taking risks in faith, even when it was costly. And they didn't seem to care about what looked cool, and yet they seemed incredibly cool to me. It seems a bit like Philip. They seem seated. They seem to be living by a different reality. An earthly seat is obsolete, but my place with him is priceless. Now, Simon the sorcerer is a different story. And it may be hard to get our heads into Simon through contemporary eyes because we don't really talk about sorcery. And whilst there definitely would have been sleight-of-hand performers and illusionists in the time of Philip and the early church, there's no indication here that Simon's powers were fake. Often where sorcery appears in Scripture elsewhere, the writer is explicit about the source of that power, whether it's demonic or a pagan god or Satan himself. But not here. Not here. We're told the locals identified um, Simon's power as godlike. But just because it's hearsay doesn't mean that it really is God. And interestingly, Simon seemed more interested in boasting of his own greatness than pointing to the Lord. We may be suspicious of Simon too, but as the story unfolds, I kind of feel for the guy. He was a man of great power and influence. He had built a large, long-standing following. And then Philip rides into town. And in a moment, it's all swept from underneath Simon's feet. His fandom switches allegiance en masse to the kingdom of Jesus. And if I was Simon, I would have been livid. His reputation, his livelihood, his identity have all gone to pot. And yet Simon somehow is not completely hard-hearted as I would have been. He's amazed at the miracles that um, Philip performs. And that in and of itself indicates that perhaps they are drawing from a different power. Perhaps they don't have the same divine relationship. And Simon wants more. He wants in. And we're told that he believed and that he was baptized. And then in the wake of all this kingdom activity in the suspicious place of Samaria, Peter and John roll up to check out what's going on and to bless it. They begin to lay hands on folk so that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And again, Simon looks on, sees the power, and he wants in on the action. But we know from what comes next that Simon misunderstands how it all works. He is still thinking in terms of his past, earthly reality. You see, trading spells for cash was commonplace amongst sorcerers of that time. He is therefore of the impression that God's power is something that can be bought and therefore controlled and therefore used for your own gain. And although it's not explicit in the text, it, it feels to me as though Simon is trying to hold out, on, hold on to the world that he created, where he is ruling, where he is revered, where he is rich. But to do so, not by harnessing his old power, but by this new great power available to him. He doesn't clock that ultimately all this power comes from a deep-seated relationship with the Lord, who is ruling from heaven And that's what enables the disciples to do what they do. He doesn't understand that God's power is not something to be grasped, but something to signpost to Jesus and to serve others. Notice back in Acts 6, when the apostles lay their hands on Philip, our first character, he goes on to live a life of being seated in Christ, he goes on to live a life of signposting to Christ, and he goes on to lead a life of serving others. 
That doesn't seem to be Simon's agenda. He sees the gifts, but perhaps misses out on getting to know the giver. Imagine you have a one-year-old boy in your lap, and through the window, a beautiful bird just appears. And you go, look, there's a bird, there's a bird. The one-year-old might hear your excitement, look at your finger, and even want to emulate your excitement and stick out their index finger too. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they've seen the bird through the window. The signpost is there, but the sign is missed. The, the, the source of the sign is missed. Peter, who, funnily enough, was also called Simon once and is no stranger to a rebuke, in this passage he dishes out one to Simon the sorcerer. And again, we get to see the complexity of Simon as he responds. You know, he's bitter, he's trapped in sin, as Peter says, but he responds with remorse. The slight complication is that he doesn't go to God himself. He pleads for Peter to go on his, on his behalf. And that's where I start to think, hmm, is he really seated? Is he really deeply seated? Fully seated? And we're complicated people like Simon too, aren't we? There are times when I feel like I'm fully seated, trusting in the Lord, rested in him, going about my business of serving him. But there are also earthly realities that I'm fighting with. Anxieties, sins, doubts, ideas. John Mark Comer, who recently wrote a book called Live No Lies, which I'd highly recommend, says this. When we believe truth, that is, ideas that respond to reality, we show up in such a way that we flourish and thrive. We show up to our bodies, to our sexuality, to our interpersonal relationships, and above all, to God himself in a way that is congruent with the creator's wisdom and good intentions for his creation. When we believe lies, ideas that are not congruent with the reality of God's wise and loving design, then we tragically open our bodies to those lies and let them into our muscle memories. We allow an ideological cancer to infect our souls. We live at odds with reality, and as a result, we struggle to thrive. That's pretty stark, isn't it? But Jesus says that the truth can set us free. So, do I have the humility like Simon to recognize where I have lost sight of Christ? Am I willing to listen to the rebuke? Am I willing to admit where I'm trapped in sin? And is my version of life with God too small? Do I see my place with him as priceless? I think, sadly, in the Western church, we dwell too little on the ascension and what it means to be raised with Christ. There are other landmarks in Scripture that perhaps we find it easier to put our finger on. You know, we worship the God of creation, whose hands hold every far-flung star, who makes order out of chaos, who places beauty in every fleck of every iris, We worship a God who fearfully and wonderfully made us and intimately knew us before we were born. We worship a God of covenants whose faithfulness and truth spans and shapes millennia, who is good on every promise he makes, whose character never changes and whose love never wavers. We worship a God incarnate who stepped down from glory and has lived and breathed in this world for this world 
who reveals his incomprehensible nature in palpable, humble, flesh-framed form. We worship a God who meets us more than halfway, who calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We worship a Christ crucified, a God of endless, self-giving, merciful, victorious love, who takes on our sin, our suffering and death, who overcomes evil, lifts us from shame, renders us righteous, heals our hearts, and leads us to freedom. We worship the resurrected Christ, the God of the impossible, the author of the eternal, the one who brings dead things to life. Who am I to deny what the Lord can do? We worship a God of Pentecost who crams every corner of this earth with his presence, who longs to display his power, his purity, his purposes through uniting and releasing his children here on earth. We worship a God of heaven who is making all things new, who will wipe away every tear and heal every pain and bring lasting peace and flourishing in the kingdom to come. However, we are also an ascended people. From the moment we call Christ Lord, we have a different reality available to us. It is so much better than the finite and flimsy ideas the enemy would have us believe. We can find ourselves seated today in the heavenly realms, rubbing shoulders with the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who right now is seated on the throne. John Comer adds, the New Testament writers did not see faith as a leap in the dark. For them, it is a lifestyle of unswerving trust and loyalty to Jesus based on his knowledge of reality. I wonder if you remember in the resurrection story of Mary in the garden at the tomb, and she's upset and she holds to Jesus, but he says to her, Mary, do not cling to me. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended. There's something about Jesus ascending that means now we can cling to him. Simon Ponsby, who does a great little podcast called Unscripted, where he's just waffling through Ephesians at the moment. Um, And he says this, and this I finish with. We may not understand it, but Jesus is there on our behalf, and we are there with him. The angels and demons may say, who are they to sit there? But it's not on our merit. It's not on our credit. I'm with him. I am in him. Seated means job done. We are at rest. It's time for us to start living in the reality of our identity and position. Whatever comes, remember who you are. Remember whose you are. Remember where you are. Whatever comes, remember who you are. Remember whose you are. Remember where you are. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are Lord of lords and King of kings. That you are seated on the throne. And that we have the immense privilege of somehow being in this world, but not of it, and and being secure in yours too. I pray by 
the power of your spirit, that you would begin to break the ideas in our heads that aren't of you. You begin to heal our minds and hearts of the hurts that aren't from you. That we would feel like we get to do each day, not sat on a wobbly one-legged stool, but securely seated with you. And we pray particularly for, for those right now who are really facing vulnerable places, big callings, big decisions. Thank you that you go ahead of each of us. That, Jesus, you are there interceding for us right now in the heavenly places. And that even what the enemy might mean for evil in our lives right now, you turn for good. We thank you, Lord. Amen.